Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on the topics I talk about. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself before sharing. If you find that I was wrong about something, please let me know so that I may correct myself. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out, so listener discretion is also advised. episode 70 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today I'll be talking about the Stonewall Riots in honor of LGBT History Month, as well as a skeptical stunt pulled off by James Randi, the first toilet paper company to say goodbye to cardboard tubes, and wildlife issues with domestic cats. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. James Randi is like one of the godfathers of skepticism, so he comes up again and again in my skeptical segments. He was specifically talked about in the Skepticism and Mentalism episodes, numbers 57 and 58. I know I mentioned several of Randi's tricks in at least one of those episodes, but I didn't go into detail on many of them. So today I'd like to go over one of the greatest pranks he ever put together to demonstrate how people believe false things. This is the prank of the Channeler of Carlos. Channeling was the big woo fad in Australia in the 80s. Randy, of course, knew it was all bullshit, but people kept saying that there was no way these channelers could possibly be faking it. So when Channel 9 in Australia approached him to see if he could cast doubt on channeling, Randy excitedly agreed and set out to prove that it could indeed be faked. He hired a performance artist named Jose Alvarez and trained him by having him watch videos of supposed channelers. When he was ready, he began to present himself to Australian media as the channeler of a 2,000-year-old spirit named Carlos. He became very famous very fast, channeling Carlos in multiple venues and on all the news networks. The Australian media bought into it completely, following him everywhere. One day, just to see how far they would go, Jose went to the beach and waded into the water. He claimed that he had to do this to recharge his crystals. The media folks actually followed him into the waist-deep water with their equipment, mics on booms, fully clothed, with wallets and pockets, them and all of their equipment getting wet for something that was pure bullshit. When the truth was revealed, the Australian media were humiliated, as they should be. After all, in the press releases Randy had put out about Jose the Channeler, the named magazines, towns, cities, radio stations, and TV channels he cited were all fake. It would have taken just one media person to make one phone call to just about anybody in the United States to find out none of these things existed. What a huge critical thinking fail for all of them. I'd be humiliated too. Randy called the prank good fun, but also said that it saddened him at the same time. He had been hopeful that there would be more skepticism and critical thinking towards the channeler of Carlos, but none were displayed, and that was disappointing. Hopefully this experience taught some of these media professionals to be more skeptical, damn it. 
was over a decade ago when I first became aware of the issues with toilet paper tubes not being recycled. People don't usually have a recycling bin in their bathroom, and many people just toss it instead of carrying it through the house to the bin. Same with workplaces. Most do not have a recycling box of any kind in the bathrooms. And while I'm okay with it, many people do not want to walk through the office with a toilet paper tube to put it in the recycle bin. When I first learned about this, I put a box in the woman's washroom at work with a note that it was for toilet paper tubes, and that did the trick. If I notice it's getting full, I just grab it and empty it. Way back then, I was already reading about companies looking into eliminating tubes altogether, but I just recently finally heard about the first company to be releasing them. Cushell is going to be the first company to accomplish this big step. Good for them. These tubes contribute to deforestation and other issues, and there really is no need for them. Well, to most people, anyway. There is a complaint about the very idea of tubeless toilet paper. According to an 83-year-old past host of a show called Blue Peter, removing the tubes from toilet paper rolls is depriving the public of a key component of amateur arts and crafts. Toilet paper tubes apparently appeared in about five out of every ten things made on the show. He used some pretty strong words, saying he was horrified by the decision and calling it a complete catastrophe. Wow, right? Removing cardboard tubes from toilet paper rolls is a complete catastrophe. Have you seen the world we live in? I have kids, and we were big crafters when they were small, and yes, I understand the value of a cardboard tube for fun with kids. But trees are a fuck of a lot more valuable than cardboard tubes, and we will find other things to do the same things with, either with paper towel tubes or by rolling and taping a piece of fucking construction paper. I don't think there's anyone who's going to suffer at all from the lack of toilet paper tubes. I got this information from wildlife.org. Cats are predators, and domesticating them has done nothing to minimize that. Cats are among the 100 worst non-native invasive species in the world, with domestic ones being just as much the predators as their wild counterparts. They have driven down populations of birds, small mammals, reptiles, and amphibians everywhere they've been introduced. When brought onto islands, they do irreversible damage. The International Union for Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, says that domestic cats on islands have contributed to 33 modern bird, mammal, and reptile extinctions. Though the mainland also experiences the effects of domestic cats with the reduction of bird and mammal populations there, they have a much more drastic impact on islands, particularly smaller ones. Cats are killing 1.3 to 4 billion birds in the U.S. every year, and 6.3 to 22.3 billion mammals. The IUCN states that cats have become the single greatest source of anthropogenic mortality for U.S. birds and mammals. That's pretty huge. What can we do about it? Not a whole lot, but leashes do help. I know this pisses people off, but I know a few people who have leashes for their cats when they're outside, and I have serious respect for them. Yes, cats can be on leashes. They're just fine on a leash, and doing so saves so many birds, baby bunnies, and other animals. Unless you're on a farm, of course. If out in the country on a farm, then of course you want the cats to be free, because they're performing a task. They're keeping the property clear of pests. But in towns and cities? I'm definitely pro-cat leash, so go ahead and come at me. October is LGBTQ History Month. In honor of this time of year, I'm going to talk about Stonewall. In the 1950s, a Wisconsin senator stated that deviant sexual behavior, like deviant political ideology, 
were things that made people more vulnerable to blackmailing. One guess what was considered deviant sexual behavior at the time. Basically, anything outside of Christian-based norms, which are man and woman, plain Jane sex for baby making, and no butt stuff. In 1953, Eisenhower released an executive order banning homosexuals from working for the federal government, citing security risks because of the same thing. Their deviant sexual behavior made them vulnerable to blackmailing. Thousands of good, hard-working people lost their jobs because of this incredibly ignorant move on his part. People like Frank Cammy, who had a master's and doctorate in astronomy from fucking Harvard, just let go because they were gay. Frank went on to devote his life to fighting for gay rights and eventually became known as the father of the gay rights movement. Up until the late 60s, it wasn't even legal to serve drinks to known LGBT people. When it did become legal, it was still illegal for them to meet for drinks and bars. This one really pissed me off. Two or more LGBT individuals meeting for drinks was considered solicitation of a homosexual relationship, which was still illegal. Fuck! Completely ridiculous. Yet we can see the courts in the U.S. trying desperately to get back to these ways right now. And we have people like that here in Canada, too. Nobody with issues with LGBT people have anything legitimate to back it up with. They make stuff up and they quote Bible verses. Nothing they holler about is ever actually real life. But damn do they ever want you to be afraid of those who are different. And they will say the most vicious, evil, dangerous things to suck you into that fear. So even in 1969, because of ignorance and bigotry, establishments which served alcohol to gay customers were considered disorderly houses or places where unlawful practices are habitually carried out by the state liquor authority. So the SLA got away with refusing to issue liquor licenses to many gay bars, and several ended up having their legitimate licenses suspended or revoked for what was put down as indecent conduct. Again, indecent conduct stood for serving drinks to gay people in the bar. And that's how organized crime families ended up owning the majority of the gay bars in New York City. Because it was against the law, they were able to get away with selling drinks for double and triple what one would pay elsewhere. But they made it a place for this community to gather, which they didn't have anywhere else, so people of this minority community paid the exorbitant prices. The Stonewall Inn was one such gay club, located in Greenwich Village. While it was still raided regularly, the owner and member of the Genovese family bribed the New York 6 police precinct with around $1,200 a month to turn a blind eye to their actions. That may not be much now, but it's a shitload of money for the 60s. One of the tricks to get around liquor license laws was to declare a bar a private bottle club. Private clubs did not need liquor licenses, and they were not as easy to enter and raid by police. While there really was no membership, they would maintain the illusion of it by having all the patrons sign in upon entry. Though, it was pretty well known that almost nobody used their real name. I mean, it was a fake club anyway. With police paid off, the owners were able to get away with other things as well. Cuts were made that affected safety. There was no rear exit, and only a single front door, which was described everywhere simply as narrow. Other cuts were made that removed any hygiene. Imagine no running water behind the bar. This was the case, and so when glasses came back, they were actually just reused without cleaning. They didn't worry at all about not being up to many city codes. But again, these communities of people had nowhere else to go, so they put up with the watered-down extremely expensive drinks and the lack of cleanliness. 
Another thing patrons unfortunately had to put up with was extortion. The owners would single out wealthy individuals who were not publicly out and blackmail them with outing them to family members and business associates for exorbitant amounts of money. Because the bar slash club would still be raided and they would often take away the booze they would find when it was, most of the bottles were not out in the open or even in the bar at the time. Many of these places would have their bottles kept in nearby cars until needed or sometimes hidden behind panels built into the walls. The establishment would also usually be ready for raids when they came because their paid off cops would give them a heads up. Their losses were always very low. In fact, most of these places had the ability to be completely shut down and be relocated and reopened under a new name within the week. It's the patrons who would go through the most. Being manhandled, being forced to show their private parts. In case you're not aware, at the time the New York criminal statute authorized arrest of anyone not wearing at least three articles of gender appropriate clothing. Wow. Like, who the fuck is getting hurt by the fucking clothes a person chooses to wear. Fuck! Even worse is how they would catch people. Female officers would take the suspected cross-dressing patrons to the bathroom to check their sex. As barbaric as this is, remember that this is what Florida wants to be able to do to children who want to play school sports. They want this today. The only people who are getting hurt in these circumstances are those being forced to expose their genitalia. How is that not abuse? I don't care if they're an adult or a child. How is this not abuse? This one bar slash club, the Stonewall Inn, was raided one time too many. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, those who did the raiding were unnecessarily rude and rough and people just finally had enough. As a woman was being hit over the head and forced into a police van, she hollered out to the crowd gathered outside the club, why don't you guys do something? And this? sparked something. While normally these crowds on the street would disperse when a raid occurred, this time they didn't go anywhere. Her cry for justice hit people hard and it got them mad. And they resisted and they stayed. People began yelling at the police, then throwing things, pennies, bottles, even cobblestones. A full-blown riot including hundreds of people was underway within minutes. Protests in the area continued on and off for six days, some with thousands of participants. The police were dicks and came at them violently, but the protests continued outside the bar, down Christopher Street, among the neighboring streets, and in Christopher Park. This became known as the Stonewall Uprising, and it was like a kickoff for the gay rights movement, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Everyone heard about Stonewall. It did not start the movement, but it gave it that final push into mainstream, and activism around the world increased. That's called making change. On the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, or the Stonewall Uprising, as it's also known, thousands of people marched from the Stonewall Inn to Central Park and called it Christopher Street Liberation Day. The official chant of the march was, Say it loud! Gay is proud! This was the first gay pride parade. Today, the Stonewall Inn is a national historic landmark. In 2016, President Obama designated the area where the riots took place a national monument in recognition of the contribution to gay rights. The area included the Stonewall Inn, Christopher Park, and the surrounding streets and sidewalks. In 2019, the New York City Police Commissioner issued an apology on behalf of the police department, saying, The actions taken by the New York Police Department were wrong, plain and simple. Unquote. The Stonewall riots provided inspiration to LGBTQ communities for decades, and public demonstrations increased drastically after the event. 
After suffering in silence for centuries, they were finally ready to fight back. They were ready to not just accept themselves, but to be loud and proud about it. The Stonewall Riots inspired the formation of the Human Rights Campaign, Outrage, GLAD, PFLAG, Queer Nation, and more. And in 1999, the U.S. National Park Service added the Stonewall Inn to its Registry of Historic Places. Gay rights movements are not much different from civil rights movements or feminist movements. They're simply made up of people who want the same freedoms and rights as everyone else. They have never, not once, asked for special treatment of any kind. Unlike Christians, right? If you believe the lies made up out of whole cloth by far-right Christian extremists about things like grooming, then you are completely ignorant on the actual facts of the topic and possibly a bigot as well. If you are heterosexual and feel like you lost something when gay people got equal rights, where the fuck does that come from? You are literally complaining that someone else gets the same rights as you. So in your mind you should be treated special, I guess? Fuck you. And to those who have complained that there is even such a thing as Gay Pride Month or Day or Gay Pride Parades, to quote my bigoted and incredibly ignorant cousin, why should they get a special day? Nobody should get a special day. Do you people who think like this believe that they were somehow given anything? When there's any kind of parade, the groups responsible for it get the licensing, gather volunteers, etc. Do you think the city or the country or whatever is paying for these things? Which bigoted evangelical told you this because they are either lying outright or have no fucking idea what they're actually talking about? It's LGBTQIA groups putting in the time, putting in the money, seeking donations, finding and organizing volunteers and floats. It's no different than any fucking parade in any city ever. The same rules and regulations are being followed. So what makes you think they're getting something special which you are not? What makes you think they're getting anything that you do not? The answer is either you are a bigot, or you are ignorant on the facts, or both. So to these asshats, I say shut your ignorant mouths. The LGBTQIA community has just as much a right to throw celebrations as any other community. You could do the same if you had a group, a reason, a following, and organizational skills. People of LGBT communities are people just like you and me. In a properly free and equal society, they should have the same rights to work, to play, and to love. They have the right to be themselves. Any nation that takes that away or even minimizes it in any way is not a good place for anyone to be. I do not have a positive for you today. First time in about a year, I think. So I'll be sharing an experience. I think my last couple sharings had to do with bears and being lost. This one is a work experience. My girlfriend Mel and I refer to this as the A&W earthquake. For those of you who share my city, I'm talking about the Osborne Village area. But in the 90s, the tiny A&W and the strip on the east side is not the one I'm talking about. That didn't exist back then. Across from the Roslyn, where the Shoppers Drug Mart is now, that's where our A&W was. It was a rather large sit-down restaurant. A bestie and I were the opening crew for a time, so we were the only ones there for the first couple hours every morning. Me prepping stuff for the day, and her taking care of the early morning elderly folk who would come in like clockwork. One morning, as we're there on our own, I think before the doors had even been unlocked, the entire building began to shake. It was quite the experience. This rumble started out of nowhere and was so violent that prep bins and other things were being shaken off the upper shelves, and I put myself in a doorway to protect myself from falling shit. It stops, and my friend Mel comes on the mic they have up front and says, Ruby, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and I had no answer. I went outside to look around. Nothing weird. Nobody else anywhere reacting at all. 
From what I could tell, we were the only ones who had experienced anything. So what the fuck? Soon after, our coworkers started coming in and our manager arrived. We told them what happened and they accused us of being full of shit. Like we were playing some sort of stupid prank or something. To be fair, there was a bit of a prank culture amongst some of the evening workers there at one time, but not with us morning staff. It's so weird when you try to tell someone about something and they just don't believe a word you're saying. We were, of course, eventually vindicated when the explanation was finally discovered. A couple of hours went by after the arrival of the manager, and I noticed that the kitchen was feeling unusually warm. When I told the manager on duty, he said I was imagining it. Of course. I didn't think so, so I kept an eye on the thermostat. Just after I started watching it, it went up by one degree. Then it went up by another one. Then another one. And that shouldn't be happening. So of course I go back to the manager and tell him that I wonder if what Mel and I experienced that morning had something to do with the air system in the ceiling. I was brushed off again. So I continued to watch the temperature and it continued to climb. After another five degrees, I got a lot louder, pushier, and annoying about it. It was obvious to me that there was at the very least an air issue, and when you have people working in a hot kitchen, working air is important. So I became super naggy and annoying until the manager finally agreed that the temperature should not be continuing to go up and called the air people to come back in. They had been up there doing maintenance just a few days earlier. They came down fairly quickly, went up to look around, and solved the mystery. When they had been up there a few days earlier, a giant fan was not properly secured. A single bolt came off as a result, and that was all it took for this giant fan, which had been spinning at a super high rate of speed, to come off of where it was supposed to be secured to and viciously fly all over the enclosed area in our enclosed rooftop area where the air equipment was, bouncing, spinning, destroying. That fan tore shit to bits up there and shook the fuck out of the entire building as it did so. The moral of the story is that people should listen to me. Just kidding. Sort of. My notes have all been tossed off my table, so that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to my 70th episode. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. I am forever thankful to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And thank you to my Palmer family, who are my biggest supporters, and specifically my husband for being my biggest critic to help me with improvements. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 71 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 